So what is the meaning of Christmas? We've spent some time thinking about it last Friday as Josh led us through Matthew chapter 1 in the Christmas Eve service as well. What is the meaning of Christmas? Perhaps my favorite Christmas movie is A Charlie Brown Christmas. It's a a cartoon, a a children's cartoon, about a half an hour long, and the character, Charlie Brown, is going through um, the days leading up to Christmas depressed and unhappy because he doesn't understand what Christmas is all about. And he keeps asking people, what is Christmas all about? And in this moment of climax at the end of of the movie, he yells out, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And his friend Linus says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he reads from Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story about this baby that was born in Bethlehem, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And finally, Charlie Brown has a smile come across his face as he realizes the, the reason for the season. Christmas is about the incarnation. It's about Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, who is God with us. God become a man. God come to earth in a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. But why does Christmas matter? What am I to do with Christmas? What am I to do with this message of God become a baby? Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Get to know this Jesus for who He is. We're going to spend some time this morning looking at who this person is. He's not just a baby in a manger, but He's God Himself made man. The only Savior for sinners like you and me. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, realize that we are called to imitate this Christ in His incarnation. To follow Christ's example of humility. We'll be looking this morning the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians 2. As you're turning, a, a bit of background. Paul planted this church in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, modern-day Turkey. He planted this congregation, um, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. As he was passing through, he met some God-fearers, some proselytes to Judaism that were there. And he preached the gospel, and Lydia and her household and some others believed, and a church was started. The occasion of this book, the book of Philippians, it's a letter that Paul has written back to the church of Philippi. It's actually more or less a thank you letter. You see, the, the Philippians, from that point on, as Paul has been going about his missionary journeys, taking this gospel, this gospel about Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth, the Philippians have always supported him in that ministry, sending him money, sending him resources, helping him in his work. Most recently, just before this letter, they sent one of their own, a member of their church, Epaphroditus, to bring him some help, I think some financial help, Um, And to encourage him. And then also it seems um, to bring him some report of what's been going on in the church. So Paul writes this letter first to thank them for this gift, which you can read about in Philippians chapter 4. And then also 
to recommend Epaphroditus and Timothy to them. So Epaphroditus has been gone a while because he got sick. So he's writing this recommendation of Epaphroditus back to them so that they're not concerned about why he took so long in coming back. And also it seems to recommend Timothy to them who may be coming to be their pastor. And it appears that reports had reached Paul of some persecution that the church had been facing from outside, persecution from outsiders, and also divisions and, um, and fights inside the church. So after catching the church up on what's been happening in his life in ministry in chapter 1, he launches in here in chapter 2 by addressing this need for unity in the body. Paul's approach is to remind the believers of their salvation, what they've experienced from God, and to point them to Christ as an example for how they should be living with each other in the here and now. And Paul's main point in this section, this passage we'll be looking at, and the main point of my sermon as well this morning is this, that Christians imitate Christ together with humble, self-denying, self-giving love for the body. Christians imitate Christ together with humble, self-denying, self-giving love for the body. And I have three points this morning if you're taking notes. Point number one is the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation. Point number two is the blessings of Christ. Point number three is the imitation of Christ. Incarnation, blessings, and imitation. So first, the incarnation of Christ. Who is this person that we imitate? I'm going to be working through this passage kind of backwards. I'm going to start with the second half of the passage because until we understand who this person is that we're supposed to be imitating, we aren't able to imitate him. There are many both inside and out of the church, both inside and out of Christianity, who make attempts to imitate Christ. It's kind of a popular notion. Often, more often than not, I would say, this imitation that people try to make of Christ is really imitating certain aspects of Christ's life that appeal to the person. And we, these people often turn Christ into a caricature that really looks like them. They've created a Christ that looks like themselves, a Christ in their own image. There are many who have sought to imitate Christ. How many of you actually had the WWJD bracelet about a decade ago? As Christians, it's a good question to ask, what would Jesus do? We are to be imitating Christ. But imitating Him for who He is not for who we would want him to be. For instance, St. Francis of Assisi, the monk, was focused on imitating Christ and having others imitate Christ. But at the end of the day, what he was most concerned about was that people would be poor and embrace poverty like Christ. But there's nowhere in Scripture that tells Christians that they should pursue poverty in order to imitate Christ. Or Thomas A. Kempis, in his famous work, The Imitation of Christ, really focuses on separating yourself from the world, living a life separate from the world, and even from people. But in our passage, Paul is going to talk about imitating Christ, but it's in the context of being around people in the local church, not separate from them. It's easy to try to 
to try to be holy when you're by yourself. It's easy to be self-deluded that you really are holy when you're by yourself. Even Gandhi, the hero of India, a great man in many ways, sought to imitate Christ. He saw Christ as a loving as a great example of loving neighbor and doing charitable works. And he thought that everyone should imitate Christ, regardless of whether you believe Christ is the person he said he was. Gandhi didn't believe Jesus was the person he said he was. So how is it that we imitate Christ in a way that is faithful to who he is? Well, let's look at Scripture this morning and see what God has to say about who this Christ is and how it is that we are to imitate him. Imitating Christ is of no use to you at all if you do not know the Christ for who he really is. If Jesus is not your Savior and your Lord, imitating him is useless. If you do not know this Christ, imitating him is useless. We have no business imitating someone we do not know. Let's look at the second half of the passage. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus in his incarnation? I'm going to read verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So who is Jesus? Well, I have four answers to that question from directly from this section. The first answer is, this Jesus is fully God. This Jesus is fully God. He's not merely a man. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the baby in the Christmas manger, is not just a man. He is fully God. Look at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. You see, before Jesus came to earth, he was in heaven eternally seated in glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. John chapter 1 makes it clear that in the beginning, Jesus existed with God and that he was God. John 1 also teaches that he, this Jesus, who became a man, is the same one who created all of creation, the entire universe, every one of us. But though Jesus was fully God, the passage says he didn't cling to the rights and the privileges that were his as God. He didn't leverage his position as God for his own ends. Rather, he willingly gave up his place and his position in heaven. And in obedience to his Father, he took upon himself human flesh so that he might be a Savior for sinners. Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
So he is fully God. Answer number two, he is also fully man. The fact that he's fully God doesn't call into question his humanity. He also became incarnate, that is God in human flesh. Look at verses 7 and 8. The second half of verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation. God become man. Jesus, though fully God, is also a full man. He became fully human so that He could sympathize with our weaknesses. So that He could face our temptations. So that He could live the perfect life that none of us has lived. And to die the death that our sins deserved. Jesus became human to save sinful humans like you and like me. So answer number three. Who is this Jesus? He's also, he's also become a humble servant. A humble servant. See, Jesus left his position, his rights, his status... Not using those privileges, but setting them all aside and humbly taking the form of a servant. It isn't that Jesus somehow emptied himself of his divine nature, his divine attributes. But it's that he hid his divinity as he took this form of a servant. As John Calvin put it, he allowed his divinity to be hidden under a cloak or under a veil of flesh. And being born as a poor baby in a manger, it's a long descent from the glories of heaven. But Jesus descended even further than from heaven to a manger. Our passage says that he descended even lower than being laid in a cow's feeding trough on his first night. Jesus descended even to the point of death suffering human death on the cross. And not just any death. The lowest of deaths. Death on a cross. Death was, death on a cross was seen as the most brutal of all deaths in Jesus' day. It was reserved for only the worst of criminals. A, a local historian, Josephus, in Jesus' day called crucifixion the most pitiable of all deaths. It was believed to be too brutal for any citizen of Rome to endure without extreme or heinous crimes. Jesus descended to taking the death of a heinous criminal. Jesus' love for sinners is a self-forgetting, self-denying, self-giving love that constrained Him even to endure God's wrath and the shame of death on the cross for sinners like you and me. And fourthly, who is this Jesus? Well, he's now the reigning king, verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. After Jesus obeyed the Father in all things, the Father exalted him to the highest position and gave him the highest name, that of Lord of all. The Son obeyed the Father perfectly, and the Father vindicated the Son by raising him from the dead and not just resurrecting him, but putting him in the place of honor at his right hand in heaven to rule over all creation. And God's purpose in exalting His Son so that every knee would bow 
to worship Him. And every tongue confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Lord. Is the ruler of the universe. That the world would worship His Son. Now, when this passage says that every tongue would confess, that every knee would bow, this passage is not teaching that every person in the world will be saved. But it is teaching universal confession and universal bowing. You see, every knee will bow. You too, every person in this room, one day will bow before this One, this Lord. And you will confess that He is Lord. And it will happen on that final day of judgment. The only question is when you will bow. Will you bow now? Or will you bow then on that final day? Will you bow willingly? Or will you bow forcibly? The difference isn't just one of timing. That difference determines your eternal destiny. What you do with Jesus in this life determines where you will spend eternity. This Jesus is the crossroads that separates all of humanity down one road or the other. Eternal joy in heaven or eternal suffering in hell. You see... God created the world and everything in it, and He created it good. This is the gospel message, that He created all things. And last of all, He created us, humans. He created us as the crowning jewel of His creation, in His image, to rule over creation and to reflect His good rule to the rest of creation. But, rather than being content to live in this loving submissive relationship with God, we rebelled against Him. We put ourselves in the place of God and said we should be the ones to say what is right and what is good. And God, as the good and right judge that He is, cursed all humankind. He cursed us with death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from Him. And God would be right to leave us in that place of that place of condemnation before him. But he didn't leave us there. He had a plan to save for himself a people. He sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. He intervened to save sinners. He intervened by sending his son to come to earth to live the life that we haven't lived before him. That perfect life to die the death that our sins deserved, so that if anyone would put their faith in Christ and trust in His death, God would apply His death in our stead so that we no longer have to face the penalty for our sin. And He'll apply His life onto our account so that we can be right before Him. Oh friend, if you have not yet come to Jesus, He is the King. But He has humbled Himself to the point of death for sinners like you and like me. Come to Him in faith and He will save you from your sin. So having looked at the second half of this passage, who this Jesus is, let's look at the first half of the passage, starting with verses 1 and 2. Let's look at 
the blessings, the experience of salvation that we have. Paul begins this section in verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 2, with four grounds, four reasons for his appeal. This is uh, point 2, the blessings of Christ. The blessings of Christ. He's calling these Philippian Christians to live lives of unity that reflect Christ's humble love for others. And his four motivations here in verse 1 have to do with the blessings that we as Christians receive in our salvation. These are reasons that are settled in certain realities in the lives of of believers. And these are our motivations for living lives of unity and of humility. Um, And just to help with some grammar here, if you see at the beginning of verse 1, there's an if. There's an if there. So if there is, it says, any encouragement in Christ. This if is not calling into question the reality of these four statements. Actually, it could be, that if could be translated since, or if indeed, as some other translations have it. So we, we should read the passage this way. So if these things are true, these things I'm going to list, if there is any encouragement of Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort from love, and there is, If there is any participation in the Spirit, and there is any affection and sympathy, and there is, well, if these things are true, then be unified. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Does that make sense as I get started here? The idea Paul is getting across is that there's a direct relationship between what we have experienced in our salvation and how it is that we're to live lives in the world. So the first thing he calls attention to is encouragement in Christ. So Christian, have you received any encouragement in Christ? This is the encouragement that we receive at salvation. Encouragement of the comfort of sins forgiven and being reconciled with God, not being any longer under God's judgment. Have you experienced this encouragement in Christ? you experienced comfort from His love? This comfort is probably the comfort available to the believer in any trial or difficulty. The knowledge that God loves us in Christ and His love for us is unfailing regardless of what circumstances we face. Have you experienced this comfort? Have you experienced the participation in the Spirit? That is, have you received the Holy Spirit who was given to every Christian? At salvation, God gives His Holy Spirit to us as a down payment, a a promise of His presence that is to come in all eternity. We all have been baptized in this one Spirit together into the body of Christ. Have you experienced that participation in the Spirit that we all share as believers? Have you experienced God's tender mercy and compassion? That is, the mercy and compassion that God showed to us in bringing us salvation in Christ, even when we were in rebellion against Him. Have you experienced those tender mercies? Well, if you have, then this is how you should live, Paul says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
these four reasons for unity are reasons that all Christians have experienced. Paul's line of thought here is, if you have altogether experienced these blessings of unity with Christ, then live together in unity. If you've together received these blessings, live out your lives with unity. Did you notice that Paul adds in... um, the beginning there of verse 2, the completion of his own joy as an additional motivation for their unity. You have these four things. And then he says, and by the way, complete my own joy as well by living this way. His joy, Paul's joy, had begun when he preached the gospel to them and they responded in faith and he saw God's work among them. But he says now, complete my joy. What he's saying is, as you are maturing and being conformed to the image of Christ, my joy in you is growing and growing as well. Hebrews 13.17 says this, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those, as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Not only can we please God with our unity as a congregation, we can give joy to our leaders when we're unified as a congregation. We can contribute to the joy of our elders as they labor in watching over us. Living in disharmony or disunity, having fights and divisions among us, adds unnecessary burdens to our elders and takes them away from their primary work of feeding the sheep, caring for the flock. Let's be unified and make their work a joy. And not a burden. So then, what are these four results of of this unity? Well, the first is being of the same mind. Our salvation gives us all together a shared vision and perspective. a, A shared purpose in life. We have a similar outlook because of our salvation. Having the same love is the second result. That is... When we experience the love that Christ had for us and sacrificing himself for us, this leads us to want to share that love that we've received with others. Thirdly, that that we would be in full accord, it says. The fact that we share in Christ's salvation should lead us to living in harmony with one another. Not disunity, but peace and harmony and unity together. And lastly, he, he repeats almost the same exact phrase he started with, end of one mind. He's repeating this for repetition's sake, for emphasis, to make sure they're getting the point. As we experience Christ's self-sacrificial love for us, we lift our eyes off of ourselves and we imitate Christ in loving others. In verses 3 through 5, describe more fully what this imitation of Christ looks like. This is point three, the imitation of Christ going to read verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There are two ways that we can imitate Christ from this section. The first is a self-denying humility. A self-denying humility. 
humility in the way that we regard ourselves. What's interesting about Philippi is that Philippi was a Roman colony, but it was in Macedonia, separate from Rome and separate from Italy. But because it was a Roman colony, the the citizens of Philippi shared all of the rights and privileges of being a Roman city, just as if they were actually living in Rome, even though they weren't. And the Philippians, as a city, took great pride in this position as Roman citizens and being treated as Roman citizens. Isn't it interesting that that being given rights changes the way we perceive our own souls? We begin to think in terms of what we deserve and what others owe us because of the rights that we have. This sense of entitlement begins to grow up inside of us. Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 27, that they should be conducting themselves as citizens of heaven rather than as citizens of earth. It seems that this had creeped into the Philippian church as well. They were having these fights and divisions and being concerned about what they deserved and how they should be treated by others. Do you see that at all in your own heart and in your own life? Are you tempted because of whatever rights you have to think about what you deserve? To think about what others owe you? Maybe even to think about what God owes you? What is it that you see as your rights? What is it that you see as your rights? What are the rights that you cling to and that you demand from God or from other people? What do you think that God owes you? Let's be honest. As Christians, these thoughts creep into our minds. They creep into my mind. Shouldn't God give me this thing? Don't I deserve it? Doesn't He owe it to me? Doesn't He owe me the kind of job that that would make me happy? Doesn't He owe me a certain level of comfort, financial stability in this life? Doesn't He owe me a spouse? Doesn't He owe me a child? Doesn't He owe me these good things? My My Christian friend, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you anything. The only thing that God owes you is the penalty that your sins deserve. That's the only thing that God owes you. Anything other than that penalty that your sins deserve is God's grace and God's mercy to you. And God hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. He hasn't treated any of us as our sins deserved. If He did, the moment that we sinned for the first time in this world, He would have struck us dead and punished us for an eternity. But He didn't do that. He didn't do that for any of us. One of my favorite lines from C.S. Lewis, someone asks the question, will we finally get what we deserve from God? And he says, oh no, it's not as bad as all that. None of us will get what we deserve. We'll get something far better. What is it that you think you deserve from other people? What is it you think other people owe you? Your friends, your family members, your spouse, your kids. Just a little bit of peace and quiet. Christmas time with kids around us all the time. Just a little bit of peace and quiet. 
Let me encourage you not to think in terms of what it is that we deserve, but to but to think in terms of the way that Christ approached life and approached his incarnation. He didn't pursue his rights. He didn't pursue what he deserved as the God of heaven. He laid it all aside in order that he might come and serve those who only deserved his wrath, in order that he might show love to sinners like us, rebels like us. This picture of Christ promotes humility. Our humility stems from a realization of what our sins deserve. Unlike Christ, when we see our sin a little more clearly the way that God sees it, we realize that we're worse than we ever imagined. The closer we get to God and all of His holiness and light and beauty, we begin to see more and more of our dirt, more and more of our sin. Like layers of an onion as we're peeled, we get to see more and more of that sin, more and more of that dirt. And this humility that we're to be pursuing, this self-denying humility, it isn't a false humility that sometimes we're tempted to, to, to put on. A false humility, a kind of pretending that we're worse than deep down we really think that we are. But pretending that we're worse in front of other people so that they don't think we're proud, but really kind of putting on a veneer of humility when really we're still proud at heart and we still think about how great we are. We're still preoccupied with ourselves. No, this is a humility that is, um, that is true and that is based on who we truly are in God's presence. So this brings us to imitate Christ in his humility. It also brings us to imitate Christ in his love, his self-giving love. In the way that we treat one another. So it promotes humility in the way that we perceive ourselves. It promotes love in the way that we treat one another. Now, when he says here in verses 4 and 5, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's not saying to abandon every other responsibility in your life, your own affairs, or your own families. But rather, what he's saying is, contrary to a complete preoccupation with yourselves, which is often the case for us, contrary to a complete preoccupation with yourself and your own affairs and your own concerns, be concerned with the cares and concerns of others. The Christian learns from Christ to put others' good ahead of our own. To put the good and the prospering of others first. It seems that Paul's thinking here is, treat others with the care and the concern that Christ did in humbly coming to earth and dying for these sinners. In the church, we are surrounded with brothers and sisters, people that Christ gave his life for, gave up glory for, in order to purchase redemption. We're surrounded by people that Christ has bought with his own blood. It seems that Paul is saying we need to be considering others like Christ has considered others. Worth his own time, his own life, and his own death here on earth. And that is, Jesus died 
for all believers in this church, not just the ones that we like. Not just the ones that look like us. Not just the ones that are comfortable for us to be around. Christ died for every believer in the church. And we should be concerned for every single believer in the church. My daughter has been helping me think about this. She's 14 months. She's very social. And her first word at 9 or 10 months was, Hi. And she was really excited because as soon as she said hi to people, everybody brightened up. So she started saying hi to everybody, anybody, everybody. You'd be in an elevator, and there's a grumpy-looking guy next to you in the elevator. You tend to ignore him. He looks grumpy. Sam looks at him and goes, hi. And all of a sudden, you're in a conversation with someone that you never thought you'd have a conversation with. This grumpy person brightens up at this little baby who said hi to him feels that he should probably respond by saying hi back. I think what's what's helpful to me about seeing life through the eyes of my daughter is she doesn't look at people based on appearances, based on social status, based on ethnicity. She just sees another person, somebody else to greet, somebody else to interact with. As believers in, in the same body of Christ, believers who have all been bought by Christ's blood, We should have such a care and concern for every single one around us. We should not see social status or ethnicity or what looks comfortable for us, but we should see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we will spend eternity with, even if they aren't our age, even if they aren't at the same place in life that we're at, even if they don't share our culture. But we should have a unity in diversity, not in spite of diversity. A unity that permeates all of our diversities and makes it hard for people from the outside to understand how it is that this group of people could possibly be together for one purpose. And what that does is our love for one another is a witness to the watching world. Here in Dubai, it's a very diverse place But it's kind of a clumped place. The city is clumped in groups of ethnicities and cultures. And people tend to stay within their own culture and ethnicity as they interact with one another. Our church here should be different than that. We should have a unity and diversity that surprises those around us. Even though they're in a diverse place, seeing our unity and the way that we interact with with one another in spite of those differences. It looks like Christ's love for people of all kinds all over the world. You see, Christ's purpose is that He would save a people for Himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. And as we experience Christ's love, we as well catch, it's it's like it's contagious, catch that vision for a people that would be united from every tongue and tribe and nation. So what is Christmas all about? Sometimes I think we're tempted to think that Christmas is about getting. Getting all that we can get while the getting is good. Getting lots of presents. Lots of good things. We're tempted even sometimes to think of the incarnation as about what it is that we can get from God in the incarnation. We can get salvation. We can get freedom from sin. And we can get out of hell free. No... 
Christmas is about the humility of Christ humbling Himself to love a rebellious people. And it should humble us and lead us to imitate such humble, self-denying and self-giving love. We're going to spend some time now in communion thinking about Jesus' humility as He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for the sake of sinners like you and me. We'll be thinking about His broken body and His blood which was spilt on our behalf. And remembering again, those of us who are believers, how we received this One by faith and received fellowship with God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the Incarnation. We thank You for this passage of Scripture and um, the beauty of it. I feel like I can't do a passage like this justice in such a short amount of time. But I pray that You would allow the vision of this passage to penetrate the hearts of every believer here. That we would pursue such humble self-denying, self-giving love for the good of Your body, for the building up of Your church, for the glory of Your name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.